Our sermon text for today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. You do have a brief outline for my sermon on the back of your bulletin. John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You likely have heard Joanne Osborne's 90s hits entitled One of Us. The chorus goes like this. What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? These lyrics veer on blasphemy, suggesting God might be worthless and lost. But there is a sense in which this song strikes a chord with the human heart. If there is a God, I wonder if he can be known. I wonder if he is accessible. I wonder if he is near. I wonder what he is like. I wonder if he is like us. If there is a God... I wonder if you would care enough to be among us. Interestingly enough, the answer to the opening question of the core is what if God was one of us is God is one of us. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, is God. And He is one of us. And this little verse answers all those questions that were proposed. Since God is one of us, He cares. Since God is one of us, He's near. He wants to know us, and He wants to be known by us. Since God is one of us, He wants to reveal to us all of Himself fully, completely, don't need to kind of know God. We don't have to just know a little bit about God. We can truly know Him. Today on Christmas, we're reminded that we can know God in all His glory. And more importantly, we can be known by God because God Himself is one of us. So let us turn to our text today. If you're new with us, uh, or if you're visiting us at, at Central Baptist Church, we practice what is called expositional or expository uh, preaching, where the point of the passage is the point of the text. Why do we do that? Because we believe that if we rightly explain the Word of God, it is not I who is speaking to you, but it is God Himself who is speaking to you. If I were to speak to you out of my own authority, you wouldn't need to listen to me. But if I am able to explain to you the words of God, and they're right, and it is what the Bible is saying, you need to listen, because God is speaking. So, let us consider two things about God's glory being made known to us. First, let's consider that God's glory is concealed in Christ. 
to conceal is to hide, to enclose. Some of you have been concealing gifts for the past weeks. Just a few days ago, Indy told me Boaz wanted to give me a special gift, but it was a surprise. But you know how good children are at concealing surprises. And he said immediately, yes, I want to get you a Batman shirt. And I thought, okay, I guess that's not a surprise anymore. Often we conceal a thing so that its full glory can be revealed at the right time. And this is what we see in our text today. There is a concealing of the glory of God that takes place in the incarnation so that the glory of God can be fully displayed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through his life, through his death, burial, resurrection, through his ascension to the right hand of the Father, the full glory of God that was concealed in the incarnation is now revealed. But you might have noticed a strange expression here in our text. The Word became flesh. What is the Word? Well, to understand what the Word is, we have to look back in John 1 and look at verses 1 through 3. The Word was present in the beginning. It was with God, and it was God. The Word is a reference to Jesus Himself, His divinity, the fact that He is God. Did you see that? The Word was God. Well, not only that, He is the Word. That is, He created all things. We see that in verse 3. Nothing that was made was made apart from the Word. The Word of God is action. God creates by His Word, by, He creates by speaking. God speaks and He comes to pass. His Word is Himself in action. That was clear in creation. God spoke. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Anything that God spoke came into existence. But now we see the Word in a different way. Not in creation, but in redemption. God works both through His Word. So the Word of God, God Himself, right? Our verse says, took on flesh. This is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. This is one of those things in the Christian faith that we say it goes beyond our comprehension. It goes beyond our understanding. We can't fully understand how this is possible, but the eternal God took on a finite body. The, the God who transcends all things came near, became imminent. The creator, the creator of all things took on the form of a man. This is what we call the incarnation. The taking on of flesh, the taking on of a nature. God the Son became man. This is not to say that God the Son became God of the incarnation. No, He was there in the beginning. 
but he took on something that he didn't have before, which is a human nature. Now, this is a radical concept. No other religion teaches this, by the way. God is immutable, is it not? God does not change. But here John is saying that God became something that he was not. Not in his divinity, not in changing his nature, but in adding a nature to himself. God took on something that he didn't have before. God took on flesh. God became human. Now, this does not mean he ceased to be God. No, he held both natures simultaneously. And why did he do that? Well, our text tells us he did that in order to dwell among us. He did that in order to relate to us. He did that in order to be accessible to us. God is omnipresent, isn't he? He's everywhere. And yet, in a special way, he lives among men because he took on a human nature. The word to dwell here literally means that he, he pitched his tent among us. This is an allusion to the tabernacle. In the beginning, God displayed his glory to Adam and Eve that was unhindered. His communion with them was perfect. But after they sinned, they no longer could come into his presence as they did before. So what did God do? He provided a place so that he could commune with men. He, he designed a way for his glory to be concealed so that he could invite fallen men into his presence. He concealed his glory in a tent in the tabernacle. And now John is saying that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In other words, God in the old covenant concealed his glory in a tent, but in the new covenant, he concealed his glory in flesh. And instead of inviting men into the tent of his glory, now God brings his glory in the flesh to men. While in the old covenant, the invitation was come and see, now in the new covenant, the proclamation is, I am with you. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ didn't lose any of his divinity when he took on flesh. He merely concealed it. I don't know if you've seen the show Undercover Boss. I've watched that show. I love that show. For some reason, my eyes get very watery when I watch that show. Isn't it beautiful to see someone, a CEO of a company who has rights and privileges, uh, humble himself or herself, right, and dwell among the commoners? And, and why do they do that? They do that in order to relate, right? They do that in order to relate to the common worker. Sometimes they find out that they don't do things the way they're supposed to do, and sometimes they see the good that they do. 
that CEO never loses its status as CEO, never loses its privileges, never loses its benefits or his or her benefits. That, that CEO simply conceals that so that that CEO can dwell among his people. Well, in a greater way, in a much greater way, God in his full divinity dwelt among us. In Christ, he concealed his glory and made his home the human flesh. But why? Because in Adam, we fell from his glory. So God did not sit idly in heaven, not caring about our condition. No, he was proactive. He initiated the pursuit of his rebellious race. He came after the fallen humanity by becoming a man himself. Paul says that this is the humbling of Christ. He says in Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself. I don't know if when you think of God, you think of humility. But the God of the Bible is both glorious and humble. In His glory, He is all-powerful, able to do whatever He pleases, totally committed to His glory. Yet in His humility, He turns His power and love towards us. So, that question, right? Does God care? Does God care about you? Does God care about how you feel? Does God care about whatever current situation is pressing against your heart today? Does God care about your suffering? Does God care about your life? The answer is yes. God became man and came to live among us. Does he care? Yes, of course he cares. How do we know he cares? He came. He came. So if you tempted to doubt God's love for you, the doctrine of the incarnation can help you, can help you know that God cares. If you feel lonely, if you feel abandoned, if Christmas is hard for you because you feel forgotten, neglected. The doctrine of the incarnation reminds you that God is near. You're never alone. You can be loved and cared for by the creator of the universe, God himself. But friends, God, right, Christ, not only conceals the glory of God in his bodily flesh, he also reveals the glory of God. God's glory is revealed in Christ. Imagine what it was like to walk alongside Jesus. I wonder if you ever, if you've ever um, uh, thought about that. Uh, this week I saw a reel, somebody asking, if you could back, come, bring back to life an, uh, somebody from a history, who would you bring? And the young man said, Jesus. Well, he clearly misunderstood the resurrection, right? We don't need to bring Jesus back from the dead because he's not dead. But can you imagine what 
was like to walk alongside Jesus, to watch him, to learn from him, to live with him. This is what the Apostle, Paul, Apostle John experienced. And what does he say about that? He says, okay, when we walk alongside Jesus, we saw his glory. We have seen his glory. John walked with Jesus. He was there during his ministry. He was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw his work. He was one of the three who was closest to him. He saw him dying on the cross. He was there along with Jesus' mother Mary. He saw his resurrected body as Jesus appeared to the eleven. He saw his glory. And to see Christ, to see his glory, is to see the glory of God. Although Christ concealed his glory in his bodily flesh, here's what he says to his apostles in John 14, the same book. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus' glory is the same glory of the Father. But why does it matter that we should see the glory of Jesus? Okay, reason with me a, a little bit here. Remember what Paul said okay, to the Romans. We all have sinned, and what do we fall short of? We fall short of the glory of God, right? To fall short of the glory of God is to be separated from God. To fall short of the glory of God is to be condemned in our sins. Sin causes this separation. But if we're able to see the glory of the Father in the Son, Jesus Christ, we're able to be restored to glory. Jesus brings the glory of God to us. So if sin is our greatest problem in life, Jesus is the solution. If we have fallen short of the glory of God, we come to the glory of God through Jesus. If sin cuts us off from the glory of God, Jesus brings the glory of God near. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, and, and this, by the way, is this passage is building on the incarnation. Okay, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So G God has shown in our hearts the light of his glory. Where? How? In the face of Jesus Christ. So if our problem is that we lost glory, our solution is to gain glory in Christ when we look at Christ we see the glory of God friends looking to Christ is what every Christian is called to do this is the goal of our lives to look to him and see glory life is a race we must run with endurance not looking at ourselves not looking at our abilities not looking at our strength but looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Friends, we were built for glory. Do you understand that? God made 
Adam and Eve to resemble, to image, to display His glory in all creation. But that glory is no longer native to us. That glory is only native to Christ. We tend to look for glory within ourselves. We want to hear words of glory and affirmation from others. We want to be praised for our hard work, our families, our disciplines, our determination. But friends, the glory of Christ is external. It comes to us not from our accomplishments, but from the accomplishments of Christ. It comes from Christ, not from self. The only glory that brings us to a right place with God is not produced by our works. It is already finished and accomplished by Christ. We are feeble in our attempts, and in our feeble attempts, we fall short. But glory is native to Christ, and He shares it. He shares His glory with us. Though His glory was momentarily concealed on earth, as Christ accomplished the work He came to do, his glory once again was completely revealed for all to see. Here is a conversation between the Son and the Father in John 17. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, did you notice here that Jesus said, he said that he glorified the Father having accomplished the work the Father gave him. That's interesting. Because he said the work was accomplished, it was complete before he took on the cross. The word he uses here is Teleosas, meaning the goal has been met. It is finished. It has been accomplished. But in what sense was the work of Jesus complete apart from the cross, before the cross? Theologians have historically talked about the work of Christ in two ways. His active work in his passive work. His active obedience and his passive obedience. Actively, Jesus accomplished the work of the Father, the work that the Father gave him by obeying him perfectly. He was born under the law, and he accomplished it perfectly. He kept the law to its smallest letter. Friends, this is what we were called to do. You were called to obey God in every way, every demand, every law. Every human that has ever set foot on this earth was born under the demand of perfect obedience. We're not called to live a life that does more good than bad. We are called to be perfect. From Adam to the youngest baby born this Christmas day, we're called to perfection, perfect holiness. And yet, none of us can say 
to God, teleosis. I've accomplished it. We have all failed to meet the demands of God. But friends, Jesus accomplished that which we could never accomplish. This is why Christmas is so important. We are not justified simply because by the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us. We're justified by every act that Jesus performed in obedience to the Father. He didn't just die for us. He lived for us. Perfect obedience that weren't the perfect obedience that weren't the favor and the blessing of God was accomplished by him. He actively obeyed. But now it's time for him to passively obey. In his passive obedience, Jesus died on the cross. Under the wrath of the Father who condemned him for our sins. And on the cross, a few hours later, Jesus uses the same root word and he says, Tetelestai, which means it is finished. Jesus said it is finished twice. In his active obedience and in his passive obedience on the cross, the work that begun at Christmas was finished. Both his active obedience on our behalf, granting us his righteousness and his passive obedience on the cross, taking on the right punishment for the sin that we have committed. Jesus accomplished it all and left nothing for us to do. This is glorious. This is the glory of Christ displayed to us today. John says that this, is, this glory is full of grace and full of truth. This message speaks truth into our hearts. Yes, we're not adequate. We're not right. We'll never make ourselves right, right with God. That is true. But this message also speaks grace to our hearts. There is hope. Jesus accomplished our salvation. Actively and passively, his life for our life, his death for our death, his obedience for our disobedience, our sin for his righteousness. Friends, it is Christmas, and we welcome our Savior to this world. But the question that I want to ask you today is, have you welcomed the Savior into your heart? Have you received the gift of Jesus so that your sins may be forgiven and so that God may grant you the righteousness that will lead you to eternal life? May that be true of you this Christmas. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that today we would see your glory in the face of Christ. Father, we pray that today we would experience the restoration of the glory that was supposed